listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight, as is most weeks the case, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. And as always, only speaking for myself, not representing ECU, my guest will not represent uh, his institution or anyone else, just ourselves, as we always do here. It's uh, April, no, it's not April yet, it's uh, the last week of March 2022, Uh, and it's unseasonably cold here in eastern North Carolina. It's baseball season, uh, even though it's cold out, but uh, the players look look chilly on the field these days. Baseballs are probably the best varsity sport here at ECU. Uh, our basketball team was starting to improve. They fired the coach, got a new coach, and as a result, the two best players on the team uh, just entered the transfer portal this week, so there's nobody left. Uh, we'll see what happens next year. And, of course, my alma mater, Michigan, is out of the NCAA tournament. Uh my my team in the tournament now is is UNC since both my daughters uh, went there or are there now at med school, and that of course is a kiss of death for the Tar Heels that I am supporting them as they go forward. But uh, there you go. So last week uh, I had an interesting experience in regard to uh, uh, the, the teaching profession here. I got a call from someone who wanted me to help out with a, a homeschooled student who was going to do the equivalent of a thesis defense at the high school level uh, and wanted uh, some professional expertise to be on the panel judging this defense. My, my own views of homeschooling are similar and parallel to my views of home surgery. Um, it's theoretically impossible for it to work as well as doing it in the hospital, but uh, that's just theory. Uh, but I am paid by the state of North Carolina for the benefit of all citizens of the state, so I didn't say, no, I won't do it out of hand. But I did some digging and discovered the person calling me was representing a, a, a company. A, a, I'll leave the company's name out of it uh, tonight to avoid those pesky lawsuits. Uh, but a company, a for-profit company that helps out parents who are quite correctly uh, insecure about their academic expertise for teaching children. Uh, so this company helps them out for a fee. Now, I will speak for free at any school that asks me, uh, public schools, private schools, secular schools, religious schools. I, I, if you want me to talk about the Civil War, American history, I'm there. It's part of my job. Uh, just like this, uh, this I, I do this as a, uh, a service. But I don't do talks for Walmart or Lincoln Financial Group or other private companies. If they want to make money from my presentation, they have to pay me too. So when I asked the person from this, this company what compensation they would offer, they said uh, what I thought, which was none. Uh, in fact, it was worse than that. The person who was talking to me said they were a... Uh, uh, they were a contractor, uh, uh, and uh, that they were um, uh, they they had a budget that didn't include paying uh, paying an actual expert to to participate. 
So uh, that's where they – that meant somebody at the corporate headquarters is collecting all the parent dollars that go into this company. Uh, the contractors are on a tight rope. I'm sure they're not getting rich off this, uh, but somebody is. And um, uh, my answer is I'm not, I'm not contributing to this scam. I'm not going to be part of it. So I, I hope the student did well, but uh, – but that, that, I thought, was not the way education is supposed to work. Uh, the way education is supposed to work is to learn new things all the time, which is what we do here at Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, we will learn about the Battle of Cedar Mountain from Michael E. Block, uh, who has a new book on the topic. It's called The Carnage Was Fearful. And then we'll come back on the 13th of April with uh, Ernie Dollar and his new book, Hearts Torn Asunder, Trauma in the Civil War's Final Campaign in North Carolina. And sticking to the theme of the end of the war, we've got a brand new book by Gene Eric Salaker on the Sultana disaster. Uh, it just came across my desk last week. I took one look at it and said, yeah, this looks good. Uh, uh, so I'm counting on that. And then we'll talk to Tim Talbot of the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust on the 27th, uh, Vincent Burns uh, writing about the Army of the Potomac on May 4th, and then it'll be time for This Hallowed Ground, our annual tours with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, uh, which I think are sold out at this point. But if you don't go to that, in June you can go to Gettysburg College, to the Civil War Institute. Uh, you'll get a discount there if you mention Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, call, look up gettysburg.edu, and, and you'll figure out how to get connected there. Well, let's get connected to our guest tonight. Um, got him on hold, and uh, I'm hoping he can hear what we're saying. We'll get him patched in here momentarily. Uh, he is Jim Downs, teaches at Gettysburg College, and uh, let's let's see if he's there. Jim, are you there? And we're getting silence. Let's see if we can get this to work. Uh, okay. Um, not getting a response. Um, uh, that's a possibility. Uh, Jim, check your, your mute. Uh, Jim is texting me that he can't hear me right now. Uh, but he's, he's doing it in the chat window, so we know he's, he's still here on our call. Um, uh, text him. Are you muted? Uh, uh, we'll try again to get connected here. This is the thing with academics, uh, myself included, dealing with technology. It is, uh, um, in my case, the the boomer uh, spectacle of a, a professor who cannot um, cannot communicate with his students sometimes. Um, okay. Um, well, be patient, listeners. We'll get this straightened out in just a moment. Um, uh, let's go ahead to a break, and we'll get connected with our guest as soon as we come back.
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Jim Downs, author of Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. He's also the editor of the academic journal Civil War History. In our first segment, uh, I chatted merrily with you, uh, but not with Jim because we had some technological issue, uh, much as we did last week. This is two weeks in a row. I've, I've Skype has not been my friend, and I... Uh, feel like, uh, as Grouch Marx would say, a 10-year-old child could understand this. Someone get me a 10-year-old child. Um, last week, I think it was my fault. Uh, it may well be again, so I may have to have a 10-year-old standing by next week and uh, and send another one out to uh, next week's guest as well, so we get everything squared away. But here we are. Um, Jim, thank you for being patient, and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for having me. So, uh, the, as I said in the introduction, uh, the first reason your name crossed uh, my mind in the last month or two, uh, of course, I, I knew of your work, uh, Sick from Freedom, and other books that you've written, but uh, you were appointed editor of Civil War History, uh, an academic journal. Right. I don't know how many of our listeners uh, read Civil War History. It's not one of the uh, Barnes and Noble magazine rack uh, Civil War publications right. like Civil War Monitor, Civil War Times Illustrated, or others. Uh, it, it's who is Civil War history aimed at? Uh, tell us what it is. Well, it's, yeah, it, it, it's really aimed at um, your audience. It's aimed at anyone interested in the Civil War. And the articles are a little bit longer than magazine articles, so that's what differentiates it as a journal, that the articles are sometimes 20 or 30 pages. They're more in-depth um, analyses um, brought to you by 
more sort of rigorous um, interrogation of the archival sources. In fact, I was um, editing a, a piece earlier today, and I was making sure that I was cutting out scholarly jargon um, so that mm. the so that the and I kept on saying to the to the author, show not tell, um, uh-huh. because you know as scholars we can often you know explain our work by telling you the different methods and the different ways that we've done it or. Uh, but you have to show people. You have to tell them the story. And so um, I think that a lot of the articles that we're publishing now are really designed to reach broad audiences, uh, not just uh, people who are not in you know, people who are not in the academy, people who are not uh, sort of teaching history every day, but also within scholarly worlds. Um, I'm trying to uh, reach people who are diff- doing different kinds of work in the Civil War, so not just the history of politics and the history of the battles, but also the history of art. Um, there's a roundtable discussion that we are hosting along with the Yale uh, Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery. It's going to be available. Um, more information will be available um, soon, and it's going to be in May. And what we're doing is we're looking at Deborah Willis's uh, book on the Black Civil War soldier, and she's collected this mm-hmm. amazing array of images of black soldiers. And so she's coming at it as a visual artist, as a photographer, as an art historian. And we're going to have a roundtable discussion uh, with curators and historians and artists, and it's going to be live. It's going to be open to the public. It's going to be on a Yale platform. Um, and then we're going to turn that live broadcast into a conversation so that if our audience, um, our viewers, our readers didn't get a chance to watch the live version, they can tune in and they can read a transcript of the conversation. And so by having transcripts, by having discussions, by having roundtable discussions that are now going to be sort of published um, in the journal, we're hoping to reach more audiences too. It's not going to be presented in turgid academic prose, but you're going to be able to read a conversation among people who've had it. And we did that for our first issue um, about uh, a scholar's work, Savoya Glint, who won multiple prizes on her book about women in the Civil War. And if you didn't read the book, if you didn't know about the book, you can just read a conversation about a bunch of uh, from a bunch of historians talking about talking about what is important about the book. Well, that's very interesting. Professor Willis and, and her, her work on the, the photography uh, was, was our guest on this show in December. Uh, and, and it is, you're right, just a wonderful book. And, and Thavolia Glimph has been on this show as well. Uh, so, uh, the people you're talking to are certainly very interesting ones. The uh, what strikes me about it, though, is that you'd say this is going to be done not just on paper, but uh, using the Internet. I, 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 it was in Civil War history that there was an article, I'll call it an infamous article, uh, not too many years ago, uh, about the use of social media by historians. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was written by uh, a very well-respected colleague, someone I know and like. Uh, we all respect his work, uh, but generationally challenged, um, let's say, to uh, ask someone to evaluate the future of, of uh, you know, social media and the internet for historians uh, by asking uh, people at the in the the uh, the trying to put it politely, the end of their career, um, 
not not maybe the right people to ask. Uh, and, and Civil War history seemed like it was mired in the past at that point. You're saying that's not the case anymore. Correct. And, and, and it doesn't matter where people are really in their, their career. I mean, they could be at the end of their career and really love doing stuff that's online and really does. Oh, sorry, you're talking about to me right stuff now. digital I'm, stuff. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's necessarily an effect of the generation. I, I would say that I would say that the, the ethos, the objective, the goal of the mm-hmm. journal is to disseminate, to make knowledge public. And that's the point of any publication. And so I think we will be the centerpiece of making knowledge public will always be the sort of print, the printed version of the journal. I mean, I like online things. I like online books and so forth, but I really like having a journal in my hand. That doesn't mean that just because the centerpiece of the journal will continue to be the actual physical copy that we can't try to engage more audiences by doing by doing other things online. And so one of the things that other journals have done is they have a real strong online presence. They have a website where you can go to for lots of information. That's one way of doing it. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit more interactive. I wanted to also, by having these kinds of conversations and these platforms that could be available to the public, and then the journal serves as the official um, archive of those conversations, and they become the place where people can go and read the conversation as a transcript. It's like reading a play, and you can learn about it. And you and and you will still have in in that issue other articles, uh, the traditional articles that are brought for that are sort of designed for a broader audience. But we can use the new technology in different ways, and we can use the new technology as as you did for tonight's program by promoting it on social media and letting people know about the time and the place. So um, I sort of welcome the new technological innovations, if we can call them new, of 2022, but I guess they've been relatively new, uh, as, 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 as new ways of sort of thinking about disseminating information about the war. It, it's one of the things I taught this week in my civil war class. Um, it's the point of the semester where the students are anxiously, you know, waiting for the finals and trying to gear up, but at the same time, they're feeling quite beleaguered. And so I, in my Civil War class, I do two films, which is not to say that films are meant to be more relaxing um, forms of intellectual engagement. They can still be rigorous, but I do films and I do Cold Mountain. I do the Free State of Jones. I've done the Lincoln film. And I just... One of the questions I ask in all the classes is, like, why do people spend their Friday nights going to the movies to see something about the Civil War? And, you know, and it, it remains a subject of fascination among large pockets of the American population, more so than any other historical epoch. And to that end, I think that my role as a, the editor of Civil War History is to really um, offer another space to um, engage the public about the Civil War and to get people interested in the Civil War and to also provide a forum for those who are already interested in it to um, to think about it um, from new perspectives, to um, revisit old ways of thinking about it with fresh eyes. And so I think the journal can be a really uh, generative space. 
So if somebody wants to subscribe to the journal, where do they find it? I mentioned you, you don't, it's not sold yeah, in bookstores. Right. How do so you it, get hold of it? Comes, it? The journal, yeah, the journal um, is at Kent, it's house, uh, the publisher is Kent State University Press. And if you just type in Google Civil War History Kent State, um, you'll find it. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, there's another competing journal. We don't want to talk about the competition, but of course, we're all colleagues. Um, it's that's the the journal of the Civil War era. So there's now two journals. Um, we're the oldest journal in the country on the Civil War. One of the oldest history journals in the United States. Um, and it's Civil War history, and it's um, out by Kent State. And there's you go to our website. There's information on how to subscribe, and you can start getting our hopefully our, our next issue, our June issue. Well, I hope listeners will will take that up. I I thought about mentioning the uh, the other journal, the rival journal, that started yeah. not too long ago. And uh, I mean, at the time, there really was, I think, a sense that Civil War history, which is is venerable, has been around for for decades and, and has published some landmark essays in its history. Right. Uh, th- there was a sense that it was it was somewhat uh, hidebound. And uh, so this other journal started with a more, a more forward-looking approach. Uh, but uh, given what you just pointed out, that there's so much interest in the Civil War, it's hard to believe that there isn't right. room for two high-quality exactly. academic journals. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's, you know, met, let many Civil War journals bloom. Let another yeah. one come along. Okay? I, exactly. I'm not, I mean, listen, this is, it's not either or, it's both and. And I think that's the way that we should think about it. That's how we, that's how, I mean, I just think this is the point of what, what historians do all the time is like mm-hmm. people have been writing many, many books about Lincoln in the Civil War. Just because there's one out there doesn't mean there can't be another 10. So, I mean, the same goes through with the journals. I, um, it's interesting to have more, you know, more options. And, and the way that I think about it is less from the vantage point of being the editor and more of the vantage point of being an author myself. And And I can remember not too long ago when I was starting out as a graduate student or I had a, an article um, that didn't make it into my book, or I had an article that I wanted to use as the seed for that for what will become a book. It's it's wonderful that there's more than just one place to submit and our you know to submit to. So that's the other piece of it. Now, one other function that journals serve is that they review books. Uh, a typical issue will have a dozen or more right. book reviews. Uh, the reviews uh, are written by. Typically, people have written their own books, uh, and, and I know in most most journals, uh, you contact the reviewer. Uh, these are not uh, unsolicited reviews coming in, uh, but at the very end of the book of, of each journal issue, there's a, a list of books received, uh, which indicates these books have. have showed up on your desk, publishers sent them to you, but right. you're probably not going to review them. Uh, and I get that here at Civil War Talk Radio. I have more books piled on the desk here than we'll be able to talk about this season or next. Uh, and I select, I have my own criteria for selecting books. How do you decide which books to review and which books to send out for review and which <laughs> ones don't make it? Right. Well, I yeah, so I think I have an, I have an excellent, brilliant book review editor, Sarah Gardner, uh, who is a distinguished professor of history at Mercer University. And the truth be told, um, you know, people may have in the past 
wanted to be the editor of a journal, but few people want to be a book review <laughs> editor. And so often, often the person who's a book review editor is someone who's starting out, maybe an assistant professor, or someone who just got into the ranks. And it's it's a, it's often considered a lot of work. I wanted to break that habit and break that practice because I really wanted, for precisely the reason that you said, I wanted someone who had a real vision of the field, a real understanding of the trend, a real understanding of what we call the historiography, which is just a fancy way of saying how history is written. I wanted that person to be in charge of the book review section because I see the book review as, as, as you said, as a cornerstone feature of the journal. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, I was just dealing with the copy editor about this yesterday. I have all the book reviews listed now on the table of content. Prior, mm-hmm. it would just be the three main featured articles and then the word book reviews and then pages. Yeah, you, you know. have to page now through I to said, find no, out what's in there. It, yeah. you know, the people who've written these reviews um, deserve to have their work prominently featured. The books need to be prominently featured in the table of contents, not just shoved in the back. I also have the book review viewers um, bios listed as, in the contributor section. They're, it's not just simply their name in six-point italic font scribbled at the bottom of the article. I want mm. them prominently featured. So one of the things that I'm trying to do with the journal is really to um, place the labor of the book reviewers at the center of it and to place the book reviews prominently at the center of the journal. And then I just let Sarah do what she does best. And because she's a senior distinguished member of the field, she knows exactly who to contact. Um, in fact, we have in our in our forthcoming um, issue um, talking about, I think it is Deborah, Deborah Willis's book. We are mm-hmm. um, reviewing it. And we have a guy who is a, a scholar who is a literary scholar. He won the Frederick Douglass Prize. He He's a professor at Trinity. He's reviewing it. So we are, she's able to really find leading experts to read it, people who who are known in the field, to read the books, to review them, and to really make it a a main part of the the journal. And I, and, and so I think that's, I think it's really important. And we look Mm -hmm. for lots of things. I mean, we, 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 broadly define civil war in terms of the years of anything in the Civil War era, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, anything from 1830, 20, you know, 30 years before the war began, when you start seeing shifts in political parties, when you start seeing the rise of abolition, to the war years, the 1860s. And then even after Reconstruction to about 1877 um, is where we cut it off. But if there's books on the memory of the Civil War, other things related to the Civil War, we include those because we have a capacious understanding of what actually constitutes a Civil War era book. Well, that uh, ties in with uh, my thought here, certainly, and and that is a good segue to your uh, recent book, Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. It It's not right. focused directly on the Civil War, but there are chapters about it. Um, the, uh, the, the book looks at the history of, of epidemiology uh, mm-hmm. and, and uh, 
I mean, you, you, it's a topic you've, you've written about health in this era. I mentioned sick from freedom, African-American sickness right. and suffering during the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, right. Is it is it a fair summary to say that, that this is about how epi, epidemiology as a science grows out of imperialism, colonialism, and military bureaucracy? Yes. So the fancy way of thinking about or the easiest way to say about epide- what is epidemiology? Epidemiology is... The study of how epidemics spread across populations, the efforts to control and prevent it. So the key word in that definition is populations. And so the question is, how and when do people start actually thinking about studying populations? People study doc- I mean, doctors have studied patients, individual patients for a very long time. And there are cases before 1755, when the book begins, um, where people study populations and thought about populations. But something like the Civil War offers scores of physicians all over the Confederate South, all over the West, all over the North, to begin studying large populations of people. The war creates the battlefields, and the battlefields congregate large numbers of people in one confined place, and it becomes an opportunity for doctors to study populations. And more importantly, the war creates a bureaucracy. Doctors now have a network where they can share information. So prior to the Civil War, a doctor in Orangeburg, South Carolina, would have no reason to be in touch with a doctor in Louisiana or a doctor in Virginia. The Confederate military um, creates a network, and it creates, and within that network, it demands doctors fill out reports, and those reports get channeled through a bureaucracy. Now doctors are collecting information about the spread of disease across populations. And so that's one key aspect of how epidemiology as a field begins. It originates in part through military medicine. And what I noticed was the Civil Wars is is central to that. But if I'm thinking about epidemiology, I can't think about it purely just as a phenomenon that grows out of the United States. It's a global practice. I have a chapter on the Crimean War. You do. I'm I'm going to have to jump in, Jim. We're going to have to take a quick break now and come right back. We're going to talk more with our guest tonight, Jim Downs, author of... Pull that in front there. Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jim Downs, author of Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. Uh, At the end of the last segment there, I had to pause and look for the title of the book because I don't have the physical book in front of me. Uh, I'm reading it online uh, from our, our online access copy, as I do more often and more often these days, uh, tying in with our discussion of technology and the journal Civil War History. Uh, Jim, you mentioned uh, as, just before the break, we were talking about the Civil War contributing to the the uh, growth of, of statistics and reporting and, and medical uh, science in that regard. And you mentioned how this begins uh, or really folk takes us back to the Crimean War and Florence Nightingale. We think of her as the, the nurse, the lady with the lamp, but you suggest she's actually uh, a, a, a proto-scientist. Right. So, I mean, one of the things that, that I was saying before the break is just the ways in which battlefields become laboratories to study mm. populations. And Florence Nightingale goes to Crimea, and when she enters into the hospital, she can't understand why more troops are dying as a result of being um, in the hospital than on the battlefield. And she begins this massive sanitary effort to clean up the hospitals. And in so doing, she becomes really intrigued with what is actually happening with the hospitals, besides the fact they're filthy and they need to clean kitchen utensils and and change the bedding and and those types of sanitary issues. She becomes really fascinated with um, the need for ventilation. And so she becomes an engineer and starts actually laying out plans for how to design the hospitals and how many patients can be in a particular room and why there needs to be um, ventilation and how that could um, promote the circulation of air. And then, as you said in the opening remarks, um, she turns to, to statistics because at this time, there is an understanding of microbes, of germ theory, of how virus operates and spreads. And so all she has is numbers. She has the number of people that enter the hospital, the number who died, the number who suffer, the number who have comorbidities. And so in order to translate all of this numerical knowledge to the public and also to um, the British Sanitary Commission and the military, 
she creates something called a rose graph. She actually creates a pictorial description that articulates the you know the, the mortality rates within a particular region to to in some way convey how this population is suffering. And so this notion of using statistics, which we're also familiar with today with COVID, number of people vaccinated, number of people infected, number of people who have Omicron, it really begins to become popularized as a result of Nightingale's efforts um, in the Crimean War, largely because British pub, the British public now has a vested interest in the health and welfare of their sons, husbands, and fathers who traveled off to fight in the war, but then are becoming sick and dying within the mm. hospitals. So um, what I'm trying to do is, is to sort of show how epidemiology as a practice developed from this military endeavor. But what I really want to be able to say, and this is why you could say, okay, there's three chapters on the Civil War, there's two chapters <laughs> on slavery, there's one on the Crimean War. What I'm trying to do is put the Civil War into a conversation with these mm -hmm. other major moments in the 19th century. You know, mm -hmm. as a historian, you know all of these things existed. You know colonialism existed, existed uh, colonialism existed with the rise of empire, we know about the expansion of imperialism, we know about slavery, we know about the Civil War, we know about the Crimean War, but they're told separately. My book is to place the Civil War in a global context and say, how can we look for ways in which these major transformations had commonalities and medicine becomes the link of seeing the similarities? And once you start, on, on, once you start going down that investigative pathway, um, you realize, as I did in writing the chapter about the Confederates, that's how they actually understood the war. So this isn't just mm -hmm. my idea of, hey, let me try to be, you know, create a fancy, interesting way of thinking about the 19th century. Let me connect the Civil War to colonialism. Let me connect the Civil War to the slave trade. Actually, Confederate doctors understood their work in dialogue with these other major transformations that were happening around the war, uh, the war, the world. Um, if you think about the Union, um, they understand what was happening in Crimea um, as affecting and shaping how they were going to create a sanitary commission in the United States. So it's this idea of placing these moments in conversation is not simply my invention. It's mm -hmm. actually how people at the time thought. It's actually how they imagined the world. It's actually how they understood their connections to other parts of the world in order to understand the spread of epidemics. They were looking at these other places, similar to the ways in which today we look at Omicron in South Africa or COVID in Wuhan to understand what's happening to us in the United States. So that global perspective of epidemiology um, is not a recent phenomenon, but, it's, but it can be traced to the episodes that I introduced in the book. Well, you show how Americans, when the, the Civil War breaks out in the United States, they, they, they 
very specifically draw on the Crimean experience, and they they talk about mm-hmm. the need for sanitation, the need for cleanliness. Uh, they don't yet understand germ theory, but they do understand uh, something's going on here. And I was fascinated actually by the the earlier chapters about the argument between the difference between contagion and infection. That everybody knew diseases spread, but nobody knew quite how, and and uh, right. the way they study this. But what what I thought was was certainly the, the most striking point uh, in the chapter on the the United States Sanitary Commission was how they they actually introduce race as a, a category in a way that uh, Florence Nightingale and the the British had not done. Right, right. And so this is a really interesting point and something that people always ask me about. I just got done doing a class in California, and this was the the, the question out of the gate. Um, right. So here here here's the thing. Like, Someone like Florence Nightingale in, in Crimean War, and then later she's doing work in India, or Gavin Milroy, who's a British doctor and working in Jamaica, they absolutely subscribe to notions of white, what we would identify as white supremacy or racial and you know racial difference. They thought that mm-hmm. the British were the superior race, absolutely. But when they were trying to figure out how disease spread, they didn't simply just fall back on an algorithm that factored in race as the main explanation. They didn't just say, well, it just spreads because people are black in Jamaica or people are, in, you know, the, the Indians are very poor in the subcontinent. They, they're actually, as, as you know, Nightingale was doing, trying to really understand what was happening within a particular room, how the air was circulating, what was happening if you put X number of people into a particular place, um, what was happening in waterways, what, it, what happened if you, you know, drank from the same waterway that where, where people defecated, what happened if you didn't bury dead animals. Um, so they were, they were much more interested in those issues. Um, and they could do both. They can think about white supremacy, and then they could also think about the, the causes and factors of, 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 of sanita- poor sanitation. The, Amer- the, the, the U.S. Sanitary Commission um, develops mostly by, by women reformers who are, who are aimed to providing relief to soldiers. And they um, know about Nightingale. A few of them actually went over to try to meet her. I talk about this in the book. And but then their project is hijacked by doctors, doctors who don't understand how epidemics are spreading. They are confused. They're confounded. And they are um, sort of intrigued by race. They are obsessed with notions of racial categories. I mean, this is, uh, you know, a conception of you know, this is a preoccupation of most Americans at this time. There's literature, you know, talking about racial difference. There's, you know, laws talking about racial difference. It's the bedrock of slavery. It's all of these things. And so when they look at epidemic spreading among the troops, they create something called the Negro Questionnaire. And it's designed specifically to evaluate um, black soldiers based on their height, their weight, uh, their nutrition, or their, 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 their pulmonary capacity. And what they're really doing is they're using race as a way to explain why and how epidemics are breaking out. So their explanation for epidemics is, is yeah, they're looking at the sanitation, but they're also really centering race as a way to, of, of doing it. And the benefit of doing a project that's sort of global or, you know, transnational or comparative is to say, 
This is not really how everyone did it in the 19th century. The Americans are definitely overemphasizing race as a category. And it's ironic because it's at a moment when the, the Civil War ends the institution of slavery and hopes to sort of end the notion of racial difference. But the Sanitary Commission, and I talk about this in the book, they interview people who ran the auction houses that sold the enslaved people. They talk to Southerners about what, what it means if black people mix with white people. They're using a lot of the propaganda put forward by pro-slavery people in the antebellum era, and they're, they're working that into their analysis. And yet what they produce is what they call science, but it's science that's been informed and inflected by Southern racism. So the, the it's not just race you point out, uh, but there's also a, 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 a statistics about foreign birth was another statistic yeah. that you you say right. that, and that which we could trace back to nativism uh, from before the Civil War. Right. But that you'd say that that gained no traction. That went nowhere. Whereas the racial statistics are still used in public health today. Well, so what I actually did in that chapter is I actually tree I actually went so there's arguments about foreign birth and Native Americans and all these other different categories of people. But for the most part, by the end of the nineteenth century, those discussions die out. Yes, there's things like Irish need not apply, but there's not a body of literature that develops around Irish health as different. There is for black health, and it's called eugenics. And so by the end of the 19th, the early part of the 20th century, you had the creation of racial, a new form of racial science called um, eugenics, which actually looks at difference and argues for racial inferiority. Those people, the scientists who are theorizing about racial science, I followed their footnotes. They're, they're citing doctors' information from the U.S. Sanitary Commission. So when they start creating ideas of, oh, black people are different from white people, black people are inferior to white people, their evidence is coming out of the Sanitary Commission. So that was, you know, look, you're literally just doing the work of tracing 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 the ideas so of where they actually circulated and where they went eugenics then gives rise to nazism in the early you know in the 20th century so now i didn't draw this leap in the book but there is a genealogy from the sanitary commission to eugenics to Nazism. I mean, so all of these things, again, and again, these are global practices. These are global ideas that are circulating. Um, the, you know, the Germans in the 20th century are reading the American eugenicists from the early part of the 20th century. The, early, the American eugenicists are, de, are, get, are reading the doctors from the Civil War. I mean, that's a line. That's actually that's <laughs> a pattern. That's it, the history of science. It, it, it is a, a fascinating story, and uh, again, the advantage, one of the many advantages of doing comparative history, of putting the United States uh, history and the American Civil War into an international context is that it helps those of us who 
mostly read Civil War history to uh, to get out of that box occasionally and to uh, uh, and to learn new things. As I said, I, I enjoyed learning about uh, yellow fever epidemic in, in uh, I think it was Boa Vista. That was something I, I would not have otherwise come across. Right. Uh, unfortunately, we have come just about to the end of our time. I have, in, in under a minute, do you have any other projects you're working on right now? Well, I'm working a lot on the journal. Um, I guess you got I'm that. Working, yeah. I just, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I just got a fellowship to go to Harvard next year to work on a bigger history of public health that begins right before the Civil War and ends sometime in the early part of the 20th century. Excellent. And that gives me a chance to remind listeners, hey, I went to Harvard at one point, uh, something I try to do every week to uh, recoup that, <laughs> that tuition loss. Uh, but... Uh, listeners, if you want to learn something uh, that uh, the odds are you, you didn't know as much about, uh, and certainly not as much as our guest tonight, the book is called Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. Jim Downs is the author. He's been our guest tonight. Jim, uh, I look forward to seeing you at Civil War Institute. I hope you're there this summer, and uh, it, it was a great pleasure I talking with you tonight. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.